uh, we are looking at uh, a very, 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 very important prayer request that Jesus made. Now, I think it's pretty incredible because Jesus didn't uh, have to ask for anything because he could just get whatever he wanted. Um, but he was praying for somebody, not for himself. He wasn't asking God to give him something, but he was asking God to give somebody else something. Maybe that's us. Uh, and I've titled the message tonight, Mission Critical. Uh, and and the, the phrase mission critical means a system or a code essential to survival of a business or an organization. So we're just having a little conversation about a very small topic tonight. So with a title like that, no, no, no big deal, right? Uh, we are jumping into John 17 where we just came off of the first 10 verses talking about eternal life, what it means to have eternal life. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, you obviously know what eternal life is. You have eternal life, but if you've been in church all of your life, you've heard of the concept and the idea, and you've heard of the phrase eternal life since you were, I'm pretty sure it's easy to assume, since as long as you can remember. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might have everlasting life. And we see everlasting, eternal, exchanged, same root word. It's the Greek word that uh, we get the word eons from, which means just uh, length or uh, uh, amount. Um, and we'll talk about that. We've, we've spent time talking uh, about what eternal life means. Uh, it's often misconstrued to just refer to length of days, but we learned it's better than that. It's much more than that. Of course, it refers to eternity. It refers to endless time, but it, it's even better. It's even more important for the here and now. There's something very important that we learned last time. Eternal refers to a quality, not just a quantity. E eternal refers to a quality that is like the highest levels and limited, limitless potential. So yes, eternal can mean endless, but the better definition is full. It can mean uh, time that won't run out, but it's better to be understood as life that won't run out, as in today, tomorrow, we are full of life from God. We are given new life, full life, abundant life, resurrection life. And that's why the Bible says in John 5, verse 24, eternal life doesn't just begin when we die. It begins when we receive Christ. That means the life that we now have as Christians is this new, this abundant, this fresh, this full, this resurrection life. So that's why it's important for us to understand that eternal doesn't just mean forever or doesn't just mean endless. It means full. It means taken to that next level that we might live the lives we have been called to live. Uh, clearly, the adjective that Jesus attaches to life is not just an addition, but a transformation. So when he says eternal life, he's not just saying, I'm adding days to your life. He's saying, I'm transforming your life. You understand? It, when we think about eternal life, it's not just, well, I'm going to live and then I'm going to go to heaven. It's right now my life has been transformed. Yes, I'm going to heaven when I die. Yes, I'm going to live forever. But right now, I can live a transformed life for the glory of God. That's why God has saved me. That's why God has given me this life. Now, you know, scientists have studied and observed the human species and human life throughout history. Uh, they've done studies on, on, on you, know, uh, you know, remains and, and so forth, and, and they've, they've kind of looked back at the, the tendencies and the trajectories of humanity and, and, and lifespans and all that. 
uh, and they've, they've compared us to previous generations. And um, the concept that the, the idea that humanity has adapted and changed over time is one that everybody agrees with. Uh, the idea that we have been able, as a species, to adapt and adopt certain things that lengthens our days, uh, you know, that we aren't as you know, vulnerable to things as we were in previous generations. Um, sure enough, and, and soon enough, uh, COVID-19 will be something that humanity gains immunity over, and we will be able to overcome it like we did many viruses before. It's just something that God built into humanity, this ability to overcome, this ability to kind of better ourselves or, or kind of, you know, come uh, face challenges and, and, and inside and outside, you know, improve as, as a people, as a species. It's undeniable that our species has grown and adapted over time with abilities that God gave us. And of course, we see how the human body and mind has proved more resilient than previous generations. But, but let me just say this very clearly. What Jesus offers us is better than just evolution or change or adaptation. What Jesus offers us is a revolution. Let me be very clearly, I'm not overselling this. He offers us more than just resilience. He offers us resurrection. In John 17, he's praying that we might take full advantage of eternal life. He gets very specific with his request in these verses we're going to look at tonight. And here's something right off the bat that we need to understand. Jesus is praying for a body in this chapter, not individuals. Now, I'm not saying that to say he's not praying for you. I'm saying that to say he's praying for y'all. Thank God for Southern English that we get to have a cool word like that. Because otherwise, I'd, I'd have to say you all, and that just takes too much time. <laughs> you know, if, if King James had y'all, it would have been a lot easier. Because, you know, when you read the Bible, it's hard to tell the use, the plural use from the single use. Now, and that's why King James comes in handy, because there's thou's, and then there's you, there, there's ye, and there's thou's. So there, you know, the English, the old English parsed out the use better. Now we just see you, and it, we don't know what it's referring to. Context helps. In this chapter, Jesus prays for them. Not him or her, and I'm not saying he doesn't care about him or her or you, but in this chapter, he prays for them. He prays for y'all. He prays for a body. We cannot read this prayer and separate the parts from the whole, the believers from the body. So I'm going to make this jump, and when I say it, you're going to think, of course you would say that, Justin. That's your job to say it. Well, if I didn't say this, I probably wouldn't be good at my job. Maybe I'm not, but I don't know. Eternal life... Eternal life cannot be truly and fully experienced outside of the church. And I'm not talking about the buildings, and that helps. But as a part of the community, as a part of the church, which obviously the buildings where we meet, but the community, the, the experience, the network of people. Jesus is saying, and this is important because where we're going with this, this can't ha- that can't happen if this isn't true. Eternal life cannot be fully and truly experienced outside or a part of the church or detached from the church's mission. We're going to talk about something even deeper than evangelism tonight, something that goes beyond that and reaches so far that it enables those opportunities. And there are two possibilities for believers at this point. Now, if you're, if you're a believer and you're involved and committed to a church, this is just good news that reiterates and strengthens your commitment to the body already. Now, if somebody out there, and we know people that, not by their circumstances, by their choices, people that you know, claim salvation, but they just kind of have this lackluster understanding of what it means to be a Christian, I don't say this to be harsh, but I say this to be clear, uh, y'all know it's important. This is foundation-level information. But the body, but what's going to happen in this chapter hinges on the church, hinges on Christians as a body understanding the importance, the value of their connection and cooperation, and our impact on the world hinges on this one thing within the church. 
The danger of individualizing Christianity is that the church in this very, very, very important Christian virtue becomes optional. And let me just say this, because it's what Jesus pretty much says when this is all over. When the church and its mission are optional, the kingdom and its impact are questionable. Does that make sense? When the church is an option and the mission is an option, the kingdom and its impact on our world is in question. As in, its impact is not felt, is not seen. The, it, the kingdom is stunted in our separation. So how does this happen? Jesus will go on to say the church loses its power when it doesn't have this one thing that assumes community is already there. When we read this chapter, we hear Jesus talk about them over and over again. Them is the 11, which was all the church was at the time. There was a few ladies that were also a part of the church, but there's just 11 in this room or 11 in this garden. With that in mind, I want you to hear how Jesus begins this next section of this prayer. Verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world... And these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. He's talking about the eleven. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be... What does it say? One. As we are. So we don't have any question about how... Jesus and the Father are one. They're unified. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Son, the Father are one God, right? We understand that. Might not make sense all the time, but we understand, we believe that. Jesus is saying, Father, I am praying that they might be united, that they might find unity just as we as a Godhead have unity. He's not saying in a similar or in a lesser way. He's saying in the same way that we are united. I'm praying that the church, us, but he's talking about the 11 here, that they might be united and they might find unity and that by all means they stay united. I wonder why he prays this on the night before he dies. Of all things that Jesus could pray about, the night before he dies. Unless this is the most important thing. Unless it's so crucial to our mission that if we miss this, we miss everything. Is that, over, is that you know, overstating it? I don't think so. He's about to die, and his one request to the Father about those he, are, those he is leaving behind is that they may be united, because everything depends on that. Everything he's about to die for and set in motion will be in vain if the church is not united. That's how serious this is. Now, here's the thing. There has been and there always will be division in the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians, 8, 1 Corinthians 10 writes a letter to Corinth and says, I've heard y'all are divided. I'm not surprised. Then he writes in chapter 12, but you cannot accept division as the standard. The church cannot say to any part, you aren't necessary because division will kill not just a local church, which is obviously uh, uh, the issue, but the church as a whole, division is just as much a problem between us and the body down the road as it is between us and the body in the building. Does that make sense? 
Now we all we are very aware when the build when the people in the building are divided, but this is I'm talking about macro level stuff. I'm talking about big church level stuff. Division that is everywhere. Has the church gotten over this division issue in the last two thousand years? Not hardly, right? And what better season to talk about unity and division than in the most ununifying and most divisive time of the year? Everybody's favorite. Election season. Now listen, I promise, I didn't want to talk about this. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. I, I, t- I promised the Lord back in February, God, when I get to John 17, verse 11, who knows when that's going to be, because you know how, these, they, how long this lasts, and then COVID and all that. God, when I get to John 17, verse 11, I'm going to talk about this. I don't want to talk about it because I might hurt somebody's feelings, and I might hurt my own feelings, and I've hurt my own feelings plenty, and now I've got to hurt y'all's. And, and y'all aren't sensitive, but I am, so I'm putting myself in the pews. I told the Lord, I'll talk about this if you get me to John 17, verse 11. And I tried to make it as long, as far off as I could. And here we are, just in time for this wonderful season, right in between the conventions. So just a perfect time of, of God-ordained. He had to put all this in motion. <laughs> Here's why this is so relevant for our world today, for us today. You know, I think Christians, maybe we just thought this or I just thought this, but Christians used to be easy to parse out politically. Things used to be just down the middle, pretty simple. Uh, We put people on one side and the other. But that's not the case anymore. Uh, Whether you think it should be or not, or whether it maybe never really was the case, we just pretended it was, political culture in our society is so charged Everything is extreme. Everything's either far left or far right. And Christians have been pulled every which way, haven't we? Some to the left, some to the right. Some, are, some have checked out of political circle and conversation completely, and we resent both sides or we resent the other side. I mean, Christianity and politics, the two, which some people say should never be brought together, but that, you can't not do that. Jesus says he's a king, so obviously Christianity is political. It gets political. We can't dodge the conversation of politics. But some have been pulled to one side or the other. Some are just confused as to which way they should go at all or should they go any way at all. But do you know why there is nothing more divisive than politics? This isn't mine. Andy Stanley said this a while back, and I I heard it, and I thought, wow, that's really incredible. You know why there's nothing more divisive than politics? Nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. Politics divides because what do politics operate by and what drives the whole conversation? Fear. In many ways, we don't vote for someone as much as we vote against somebody else anymore. Both sides use this tactic not just to get votes, they use this to get money. Because that's what they're really after. They don't care if they get elected, they want money. Because they keep the money whether they're in office or not. But the fear, fear is what they drive everything with. The fear of guns. Or the fear of gun control. The fear of voter suppression. Or the fear of voter fraud. The fear of socialism. The fear of unchecked capitalism. If you don't vote for them or against them, these things will go unchecked or these things will go unwatched. You can't afford to let that happen. And that plays on our emotions, doesn't it? I mean, haven't we all been there? Aren't we all there? I mean, I've said it before. If they get in office, it's over. And somebody else says before, if the other people get in office, it's over. That's what we do as Americans. We worry. We're afraid. 
we're afraid. But what are we exactly afraid of? We're afraid of loss. Loss. We're afraid of losing progress, losing freedom, losing future, losing comfort. See, some people in the country, I would say most of us, we fear what might happen, but there are people in the country that fear, might, fear what might happen again, as in they done lived through it before, and they worry about it happening again, whether it could ever or not. So what does this fear do? It divides us. Because we remain passionate about what we, must, what we feel like we must protect. The reason why you can't back down from your politics is because you feel like if you back down from the passionate thing that you are passionate about because you're protecting somebody or someone or something, you have to be passionate because you've got to protect. So therefore, fear rules and division rules. This past week on Facebook, I read two separate posts by two separate people, both of which I think were, were written civilly. I didn't agree with one. I didn't agree with all of the other. But I read two things on Facebook. Both of them were titled like this. Why Christians cannot vote for a fill-in-the-blank, and there was a whole list. Now, sadly, there's more than just two options in our country because we qualify and say a blank-blank or a blank... I read two things. On, I read two articles. Why Christians cannot, in the year 2020, consciously vote for a or a. Now I know because I know y'all are kind of like me. You might roll your eyes and say, "Well, they're obviously wrong." The ones that put something in the blank. It's in me to do that as well. I've rolled my eyes a lot recently at politics, but that's even more proof that we need to have this conversation and speaks to our current reality more than ever. Now, something I love about our church, you might not love this about our church, but maybe you didn't even know this about our church. I love about our church is that we aren't a Republican church. We aren't a Democratic church. We've got both. And I love you. And I love that about our church. I hope you never attend a church where the pastor pushes a platform over and against the kingdom of God, nor one that is so homogenized and so, so in a bubble where it doesn't see the outside world. Church, we are called to model something to our world that's so powerful that isn't just confined to politics, but it's fitting for this season. We are called to disagree politically, but love unconditionally. Now, obviously, we're not commanded to disagree politically. That's just going to happen, isn't it? We are commanded to love unconditionally, even when, especially when, and since we are obviously going to disagree Politically. And we disagree about a lot of other things, don't we? We disagree on how people should take communion. So by all means, we're going to disagree about how people should run the country, right? You can replace politically with anything. And the reason this discussion over politics is so helpful is because we think we're fine and we think we don't need to have this conversation. But in a season when people will lose friends and people will say some pretty vile things to others, in a time when churches are hostile towards one another, some of them are not taking enough stance, some of them are taking too much of a stance... We've got to talk about this. You might not agree with me. Hopefully you'll agree more with me by the end of the hour, but you don't have to. But I've got to ask you a question. This is why we're having this conversation. Do we want to love unconditionally? Do you want that as a Christian? If your answer is yes, then we've got to talk about this uncomfortable, maybe unnecessary situation of political division. You see, love 
that is unwilling to leave its comfortable conditions isn't unconditional. Kind of hurts when we put it that way, doesn't it? Love that is not willing to leave its comfortable, everybody believes the same thing, conditions, isn't unconditional. I mean, when you put it that way, it kind of sounds like that's actually true. But I thought I was loving unconditionally, but I was never around people that were different than me. So I didn't have to really love people unconditionally. Have you been there? And here's another question that we've got to come to terms with. Are we willing, are we willing to evaluate our politics through the faith rather than creating a version of our faith that props up our politics? I'm not saying you've done this. Somebody has done this. Y'all haven't because y'all, y'all are good people. Are we willing, though, to always evaluate our politics through faith rather than creating a version of faith that props up our politics? Because here's the thing. I can say this, and this might be, I might be a little insensitive here, but God forgive me. Y'all forgive me. I can say this authoritatively. Jesus would have a strong word with every political party on the planet if he showed up in flesh. He was an equal opportunity offender. He called his number one follower Satan. So I think that's safe to say he would have a pretty rough word with leaders of either or every political party, don't you think? People love to take ownership over Jesus and say, oh, he'd be with us. He would vote for us. Would he? Are you kidding? He didn't come to take sides. came to take over. He wouldn't walk in a voting booth and vote for somebody. He'd say, get out of my seat. Now, he can say that I can't, you can't, but he can. Don't listen to people that say, oh, what would Jesus do without this certain version of America? If this America isn't existing, then Jesus will lose. Come on. His kingdom would march on whether we're here or not. And I want to be here. I love America. I love a certain idea of America, but I don't love it more than the kingdom of God. And nobody should. And no one should use Jesus as a means for their own political hit. Beware of that. They've already been doing it, and they'll continue to do it. And I'm going to be very vague about the they. Come on. Are you willing? Are we willing to follow Jesus when doing so requires you to step away from your party, your platform, or your politicians? Because if you're a Jesus follower, you're going to have to do that at some point. Particularly about this thing tonight. I think all of us... I think all of you are, but does this describe our world? Does this describe our church culture? I don't think so, and that's why we're so divided. Y'all are the most loving, united people I can imagine, but that isn't the condition in the rest of the world, especially, obviously, the churches that we're referring to or that we're talking about. God needs people out there preaching this truth over and against people that are lying in his name. Jesus saw this division coming. The night before he died he made this very specific request. I mean, we can't pass over this, can we? He says, Father, I want you to protect my church. Now, just before this, he said the church is going to suffer. He said you're going to die. He said you're going to be arrested. Obviously, if you die dead, you can't be arrested, but you know what I mean. He said you're going to be arrested. You might even die. But Jesus prays for God to protect the church, not from physical harm, but from the harm of division. That's not saying he doesn't care about your physical condition. He does, but he was just saying, well, that's inevitable. You're going to suffer. 
But he said, Father, I pray that you would protect them from this one thing, division. It's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Because if the church is in lockstep with one another, the world will change. But if we are divided, there is no change. And honestly, there's really no church when there is no unity. It just looks like they're having church, but there isn't. Listen to verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except Judas. And he's talking about Judas being possessed by the devil, so that was part of the deal. But notice what Jesus is saying. Hey, Father, I kept a motley crew of very different people united. So I know this is possible. I mean, John and James had been in a gang. They were called the Sons of Thunder. I don't know what that meant. They tried to call fire on the Samaritans, so that, that, that suggests that they weren't the nicest of people. Peter and, 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 and Andrew were fishermen. I mean, fishermen weren't always the most kosher, couth people in the world. Simon and Judas, not the, 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 the traitor, but the other Judas, they were zealots. Zealots were people that hated Rome and tried to kill any Roman they could see. They were insurrectionists. They were rebels. They were always trying to overthrow the government. Thomas was a doubter. Nathaniel was prejudiced. Matthew was a tax collector that betrayed his soul and joined the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, hey, Father, guess what I did with all these guys? I kept them united as different as they were. As much as they disagree with each other, I kept them united around this one thing. And his concern is that they might not stay united without him. Get down to verse 15. He says, I do not pray that you should take them from the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. What's the evil one? Division. Now he's talking about the devil, but what does the devil want to do? Divide. He said, Father, I know the easy answer is let's just take them on to heaven, but nope. We've got a mission to do. Protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, as in guiding them on this mission. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So as Jesus was being obedient to the Father, uniting himself with God's will, he prayed, Father, keep them united and on mission. I'm sending them to the world. Why is this so important? Because remember, their kingdom impact rested on and in their church unity. That's true today. That's true for Lincoln. That's true for North Carolina. That's true for the United States of America. That's true for the planet. Our kingdom impact rests entirely on our unity as a church. And not only in their unity, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Guess who that is? Us. Our kingdom impact rests in our church unity. So Jesus is praying for us as he prayed for them. You know, how much do we pray? How many things do we pray for? A lot of things, right? Do we ever pray for this? And listen, I'm not saying, I'm not making light of this. I'm not saying praying for God to unify me with the person across the pew. That's where it starts. But do we ever get on our faces and say, Father, unify the church. 
I mean, we've got people that try to say the church needs to be divided and it needs to be walls built up, and that's, that's even, that's, that doesn't help the case. Do we ever fall on our face in front of God, reading this chapter, reading this text, saying, Father, this is what is so crucial. If we don't seek this, we won't be able to make a difference. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying, isn't it? He's about to die, and this is what's on his heart. So it's got to be a big deal, right? Verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. So what's he praying? That they may be unified. So that, or that the world may believe that you sent me. So what does Jesus say is on the line? everything. He prays for all of us to be one as all of them were one. Listen, the early church was full of slaves and freemen, soldiers and zealots, Romans and Jews, and they understood the importance of unity. We don't talk to people because they are a different kind of Baptist. By all means, we are divided over politics. Of course we are. We don't talk to each other that believe the same book as we do. That's not an excuse, though, church. It's not. Jesus says that they may be one. This is mission critical. We say it's impossible, but Jesus says it's imperative. As in a command you cannot get away from. This must be our driving force. But if it isn't, if we run to our corners and hide, the world will not believe that God has sent Jesus if they don't see us united together. That's not my words. That's just me rephrasing John 21 to make it even a little bit more convicting. Look at verse 22. The glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, somebody with a smarter, I don't know about smarter, but somebody with an agenda besides me might come and say, well, he was clearly only praying for a very specific group of Christians because not everybody in the church is a Christian. Justin, you should know that. I know that. Not everybody that bears the name of Jesus is a Christian. I know that. Well, he's obviously only praying for the very few set of people in this very certain part of the world that only votes this certain way. Maybe he is. But I'm not willing to risk it when it doesn't cost me anything to lay down the pride that I've let build up between me and somebody else. We cannot sacrifice unity for anything, so while we disagree on many, many, many things, politically, culturally, ecclesiology, all the stuff that matters in the church, we must remember, back to verse 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. So he's saying, Father, while they're different and they're trying to figure this out, let the word be what guides them. And this is where somebody pipes up, and I know, I know who you are, because I wrote this and I thought it too. Well, I mean, if they were just to read the Bible, they would have to change. I mean, checkmate. I'm not talking to them because they should read the Bible and they should change. The Bible says they should be sanctified by the truth. I get you. I got you. You're, I, I see what you're doing there. Again, might God's Word change their beliefs, whoever they are? Of course. But until it does, it must still drive our behavior. Amen? And if it never changes their beliefs, 
It still has to drive our behavior. And that's the part that makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? It might not change the way they vote, but it better change the way we behave. He prays again in verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. He, it's all about unity, isn't it? This worldview of purpose. And, and, and there's a spirit in the world that wants to divide us based on a hundred different things. We cannot fall for it when the Holy Spirit's trying to build us together. Everything must revolve around unity if we are going to change the world. I mean, Jesus came to reverse the order of all of creation, to establish his kingdom. He laid down his life for us so that our lives could be raised up for him. So how is your life being raised up for him to help bring unity to a world that is so divided, specifically within his church? Here's where I hope all this comes together. Your political candidate will win or lose based on one day in November. But the church wins or loses. The kingdom grows or shrinks based on every day until then and after then. Your candidate will win or lose based on one day. But your church and the kingdom will win or lose based on how we act until then and after then. And our attitudes and behavior, win or lose, determines the impact and expansion of God's kingdom. We must not allow anything or anyone to divide us. It was Christianity that changed the world once when it was much darker and dangerous. It's the reason we understand the ideas of fairness and dignity and value and justice. These are not American ideals. They aren't Republican or Democrat ideals. They're Christian ideals. But if the church divides over politics, these ideals die no matter who wins. No matter. You know, every party gets it wrong eventually. There are two monoliths in our country today, but there's been plenty that have come and gone in our country before. These two monolith parties in our world today, two, their advocates and politicians, will all go down at best as footnotes in the kingdom of God. So why would followers of an eternal king allow temporary parties to divide us? Listen, I, I don't care who you vote for. I, I think you should vote a certain way. But as long as you go and you vote with an attitude, this is temporary, this is temporary, this is temporary. Come, Lord Jesus, you are king. This is a temporary vote for a temporary party, for a temporary kingdom. But Lord, use this for your glory and may it not divide me with someone that's different than me. And if it does, it's not worth it. Why allow division by fear when Jesus says we have nothing to be afraid of because he is in control? And I know you're passionate about truth, but could it be that we're more passionate or more driven by fear of unknown in this world? I think that explains the hostility and hatefulness. I've stood in buildings where people come in sad because of how things turned out or elated because of how things turned out. Our posture should never be determined by either. When our side wins or loses our response, our rhetoric that could either win someone to Jesus or send someone away to, from Jesus, 
should be higher and above what the world settles for. So church, can we agree on a couple things? Can we agree to value and defend church unity over everything? Can we agree on that? Can we commit to build unity one, with one another? Now, if, that, if we're willing to do that, it's going to require that we do two things. Can we pray, Heavenly Father, make us one so that we can influence many? Can you pray that between now and November 3rd, 4th, whatever that is? Make us one. When Satan tries to drive a wedge between you and somebody that could be a believer or might be a believer, just votes differently than you, and you don't agree with them, they don't agree with you, and you don't like them, they don't like you, but hey, you can see what the devil's doing, don't you? Can we agree to pray this prayer? Make us one so that we can influence many. And can we do this other thing? This is hard. Can we look for opportunity to love unconditionally someone we disagree with politically? Well, I don't know anybody that disagrees with me. That might be part of the problem. Maybe we're so convinced we're right because maybe we haven't grown in years because we've just kind of isolated ourselves from people that are different than us. If you ever find yourself thinking, I just don't know how they could vote for that person. Well, you don't know something. So that's room for you to learn something, isn't it? I'm not saying you're going to be convinced. You're probably not. But the, behind that view is a you. Behind that view is a person. That means we get a chance to bring light to a world that is dark and unity to a world that is divided. Listen, I don't have to say any of this. I don't. I mean, I'd be much more popular in little old Lincoln if I didn't say any of this at all and I said something completely opposite of this. And people might say, Justin, you're just naive. That'll never work. Do you know what they stand for? I do. I do. I also know what they stand for. And I can't agree with all that either. You might say, Justin, you're so naive if you actually think this can work. Do you really think that unity is going to actually help the church overcome division and the church isn't going to... Do you really believe that? I mean, come on, Justin, you're never going to unite people and I don't even want to be united with them. Maybe I'm naive. And I've been told told I'm naive. And I've been told I'm part of the problem. But you know what I think naive is? Naive is a first century rabbi with 11 followers going to a pagan shrine one day and looking at these shrines to Caesar and making the most crazy, insane, laughable statement anyone could ever make in his day. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Who are you, Jesus? I mean, your church? What's that? Have you noticed the gates of hell are doing just fine? They are swallowing up everybody. You'll be there soon. We're all going to be there soon. That's naive. But that's exactly what happened, isn't it? He did build his church, and hell has not and will never prevail against it. We are his church, and hell hadn't stopped us, and it won't. 
but it only gets close to stopping us when we divide. So when somebody stands up to us and says, that's impossible, can we say it's imperative? Can we seek unity at all costs so the world may know, the world might know that true life, true freedom, eternal life is found in Jesus? And listen, y'all are great. I know that this kind of message is so ideal and it's so naive in a world where all Baptists vote for the right and all you know, non-Baptists vote. I know that. Listen, I, you know, I'm not ignorant. But I'm not going to accept what has ruined the church will always have control over it. I'm not going to accept that. I can't. And until God's people fall on their face and start praying for God to bring unity and heal what has divided us, temporary arguments over temporary things, we won't see any change. But oh, that the change might start with y'all. It can happen. We won't know it. can't happen. Unless we try it. It worked once. It can work again. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm humble before you because who am I talking about all this? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm just a little nobody that's never going to be remembered once this is over with. But Father, I hear so much hatefulness and so much hostility, and I hear so much just divide, divisive language in our country. And I see so many people trying to force Jesus onto a certain ticket, and I see so many people taking Jesus and just dragging him through the mud. And I see so many people just losing the chance to be witnesses for you to people that are different than us. And I see so many Christians just beat their chest and say, well, I'm right and you're wrong and it doesn't matter. And God, God, yeah, I love our country. And yes, I want a certain way to go. And yes, I want a certain party. And yes, I want certain ideals. But God, not at the expense of people going to hell. I can't at all advocate for something and lose my witness. And the silly thing is, Father, we can still vote and still do what we do without getting argumentative and, and combative with people. So, Father, can you humble us? Can you unite us and help us to know this is so important? And help us to love unconditionally? And help us to go to somebody that's different than us? And when our blood starts to boil and our blood pressure starts to rise and our eyes start to roll and when they start to say something that is so silly to us, can you help us look that person in the eye and say, I love you? And I might not ever agree with you, but I want to know that we can agree on one thing that's more important. And yes, that will change people's views and change people's behavior. But until it changes them, Lord, make it change me. Father, thank you for this so important truth you've dropped on us tonight. Please unite us so that we might make a difference in our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.